Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 15th of June, 2015, and it is the third Monday of the month and time for our monthly edition of Film Literature and the New World Order, the podcast series where we explore different works of cinema and literature to explore them for their deeper meanings. And today we have a very, very, very deep but very short text for you to explore, and I hope you have already done so. We are referring to La Biblioteca de Babel by Jorge Luis Borges, the famous Argentinian writer, the deservedly famous Argentinian writer, who I think you will know if you've read this book, this short story, I should say, uh, is a brilliant, mind-bending author, very unlike almost any other author that you can think of. And if you have not yet read this short story, well, it is a very short read, so you could read it yourself in uh, 10 or 20 or maybe 30 minutes if you're a slow reader and get back to this podcast. Or if you want, I have recorded myself reading it for you. So if you would prefer an audio version of it, that is available through the show notes. Download that and uh, load it into your earbuds or what have you and uh, give it a listen. It is, again, extremely short, but extremely, exceptionally, extraordinarily dense. And there are no shortage of different ways that you could begin exploring, analyzing, and interpreting this work. And, well, I'm sure you can imagine some of the iterations of that exploration that are already available online. But if not, of course, you are invited to go to uh, to some of the, the, uh, the usual stops online, like YouTube, where you can find many, many examples of just uh, this story alone being given an homage of sorts by various student film type uh, productions of varying quality. I would say very, uh, usually not such great quality, doesn't add much to the experience of the text for me. But at any rate, it is a testament to the fact that this work goes so deeply into the consciousness of so many people because it contains so many downright fascinating ideas. And some of those ideas we can explore and we will uh, in today's episode, but of course we can only touch on some of them, the ones that I think are most relevant to the Corbett Report audience. For those who are interested in some of those other ideas, I will throw some links in the show notes so that you can take a look at some of the different ways that this book is talked about and some of the different tracks that you can go down. For example, something that I do not note in my recording of this, uh, this version of Borges's work, but which nonetheless is there, is that this work actually starts with an epigraph. By this art, you may contemplate the variations of the 23 letters from The Anatomy of Melancholy, Part 2, Section 2, Mem 4. Uh, well, what on earth does that mean? Why does it reference 23 letters when, of course, the English alphabet contains 26 and the original Spanish version of this story contains 27? Why does why then, after that epigraph, does the uh, alphabet in the books themselves that are discussed in this book or in this short story refer to 22 letters plus three orthographical symbols, the comma, the period, and the space? Isn't that very confusing? What on earth does that mean? There are explanations of that, and uh, I'll throw in a link to schmoop.com talking about that very subject. What's up with the epigraph? So you can explore some of the ideas behind that. Again, there's so many different alleys that you could turn down in exploration of this very interesting work. But once again, why on earth am I bringing it up today? Why did I bring it to your attention? What does this have to do with anything resembling the New World Order that we discuss here on the Corbett Report? Well, I hope the answer to that question, if not immediately apparent, will be immediately understandable. 
Oh, Google was started uh, based upon algorithms that Larry and Sergey developed in Stanford called the PageRank algorithm. And they used that algorithm to indeed build a very novel way of searching the web. What was happening at that point was there was this huge explosion of content on the web, a bigger explosion of information than had ever happened before, and it was getting increasingly hard to find the piece of content you wanted. Our goal is to make it so that the improvement we make is so much what you wanted and fits so cleanly into the flow of what you're looking for that you almost don't notice that it's happened. And looking back at it, it seems obvious that that's the way it should have always been in the first place. When you do need a specific bit of information, uh, Google tries to provide you exactly that using our quick answers. For example, take sports scores. You kind of want to know what the score is right now. You want to know how tall is the Empire State Building. Well, we want users to come to Google and get their information as quickly as they possibly can. And with Instant, you don't even have to type in your full thought. You don't have to hit enter. You can type in something like bike H, and we'll just show you the results right there before you've even finished your thoughts. We are pushing the boundaries of how you actually fundamentally interact with the search engine itself. With search by image, you can actually use that image as an input for the search. The truth is that our users need much more complex answers. My dream has always been to build the Star Trek computer. And in my ideal world, I would be able to walk up to a computer and say, hey, what is the best time for me to sow seeds in India, given that monsoon was early this year? And once we can answer that question, which we don't today, people will be looking for answers to even more complex questions. These are all genuine information needs, genuine questions that if we Google can answer, our users would become more knowledgeable and they would be more satisfied in their quest for knowledge. Ah yes, it does not take much imagination, I think, to connect the Library of Babel with the Internet. Of course, the modern form of the library must be the Internet, this compendium of, well, increasingly the sum total of humanity's knowledge. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer and closer every day as more and more of the actual physical world is digitized and put in some form online. And we are not just talking about textual uh, data here, as in the Library of Babel that Borges wrote about, we are talking about, well, everything, images, video, audio, all of the ways that we can in, in any way encapsulate or, or capture this information in digital form is now being done. And we are getting closer and closer, as I say, to that compendium of all human knowledge, which one day, one can imagine how the internet could well be described as the universe, and the universe as the internet. One could imagine, at some point in the future, the technology for someone to be born into some sort of virtual reality system, live their life in it, and die in it, not ever knowing that there was any world outside of that system. A matrix, if you will, and in that sense, in that very real sense, you could, as Borges does at the beginning of this story, equate the library the internet with the universe, and the universe with the library, the internet. And in that regard, I 
when I first encountered this story way back, way back in my university days, and as one is wont to do when young, enthusiastic, and excited about a new intellectual discovery, I was gushing about this story and its ramifications to a friend, a family friend who was over for dinner, and he was a professor, a instructor at the local uh, community college, an instructor of computer science. So, of course, he saw this story from that perspective and obviously equated the idea of the library to this this network database. And I was gushing about how wonderful, amazing an idea this was, that there were, for example, as Borges points out, Everything was contained in this library. The minutely detailed history of the future, the archangel's autobiographies, the faithful catalogs of the library, thousands and thousands of false catalogs, the demonstration of the fallacy of those catalogs, the demonstration of the fallacy of the true catalog, the Gnostic gospel of Basilides, the commentary on that gospel, the commentary on the commentary on that gospel, the true story of your death, the translation of every book in all languages, the interpolations of every book in all books. That was such a toe-curlingly, mind-bendingly amazing idea to me that in a, an infinite library, all of those things would exist. Was It was just so amazing to me that, of course, I was gushing and enthusing about that idea. And interestingly, the family friend had a very different take. He saw it not as something amazing or wonderful or something to be cherished or lauded. He saw it as a nightmare. And the type of nightmare that really, upon rereading of this story, as in from an older and wiser perspective, is very apparent in the very fabric of this story. Of course, it's a it's a horrific existence that these people in this story lead because they are trapped in a, if not infinite, for all intents and purposes, infinite library of babble, of nonsense, of disorder, of a universe in which you can stumble around for your entire life and not find a single coherent sentence in any book you read, let alone a single coherent book, let alone any of those fascinating books that Borges points out must exist somewhere in that library. In fact, you cannot even take solace in the idea that anyone ever ever has or ever will even find one of those books, let alone read them. It may have happened, or it may happen in the future, but you can't ever know that, and you probably won't ever even meet anyone who has seen so much as an entire page of actual sense. That is really and truly is a nightmare, the idea that really we live in this completely chaotic and disordered universe, and any finding of any meaning anywhere whatsoever is a minor miracle of sorts. It does really throw into question the value of the meaning in all of those things. And in that sense, I think that brings us to the question that a lot of people ask about the internet and the way it functions, which is, well, is this information overload? If there is anything like information overload, it cannot help but be encapsulated best by this story. The sense, the idea of an infinitude of combinations, or a all intents and purposes infinitude of combinations of these letters that make up the alphabet, that are just mostly nonsense. And in fact, all you will ever likely find in that library is complete garbled nonsense. Or, 
Perhaps it's actually means something in a tongue that you don't know. <laughs> Again, some fascinating ideas are contained within. So my family, the family friend, saw this as the nightmare that it was and pointed out that as a computer science professor, he was more interested in the idea of how, well, how would you find that information? How would you search it? How would you catalog it? That was the real the real task he saw, and of course, this is of course the way that uh, Borges plays out the story. The idea that these are there are librarians who are searching the library, trying to make meaning of it, and some believe that there can be a way to, if not catalog it themselves, at least find the catalog that no doubt does exist somewhere amongst all this nonsense, and all of the fascinating implications of that. But in the internet parallel to this Library of Babel, the actual Library of Babel that we see developing before us. There is similarly a question of this overload of information. Of course, it's not an infinitude of combinations of meaningless letters, but it can certainly seem that way for all intents and purposes for anyone who has found themselves idling the time by searching endlessly through that click, click, click hole of numerous stories and finding yourself reading something about uh, Persian cats on Wikipedia at three in the morning. It is often, uh, if not nonsense, at least things that are not relevant to our lives. And this really is what information overload is. And this is a phenomenon that has obviously been pointed out many times in in connection with the internet. We now have access to so much information that it's difficult to know how to make sense of it. Well, what if not only is that part of the long-term game plan of people who foresaw networks like the internet, but what if they can then use their superior knowledge of this network and how to influence it to create something that really controls many aspects of the way you use it and simultaneously surveils you as you use that system. Well, what on earth am I referring to? Well, let's let's start taking this piece by piece. First, the idea that, as Borges might have put it, the librarian of this library, the, the people in this universe, are really gatekeepers of knowledge. How so? Mark Zuckerberg, a journalist, was asking him a question about the news feed. And the journalist was asking him, you know, why is this so important? And Zuckerberg said, a squirrel dying in your front yard may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in Africa. And I want to talk about what a web based on that idea of relevance might look like. So when I was growing up in a, in a really rural area in Maine, you know, the internet meant something very different to me. It, it meant uh, a connection to the world. It meant something that would connect us all together. And I, I was sure that it was going to be great for democracy and for our society. But there's this kind of shift in how information is flowing online. And it's invisible. And if we don't pay attention to it, it could be a real problem. So I first noticed this uh, in a place I spend a lot of time, my Facebook page. I'm progressive politically, big surprise, but I've always uh, you know, gone out of my way to meet conservatives. I like hearing what they're thinking about. I like seeing what they link to. I like learning a thing or two. And so I was kind of surprised when I noticed one day that the conservatives had disappeared from my Facebook feed. And uh, what it turned out was going on was that Facebook was looking at which links I clicked on. And it was noticing that actually I was clicking more on my liberal friends' links than on my conservative friends' links. And without consulting me about it, 
It had edited them out. They disappeared. So Facebook isn't the only place that's doing this kind of invisible algorithmic editing of the web. Google's doing it too. If I search for something and you search for something, even right now at the very same time, we may get very different search results. Even if you're logged out, one engineer told me, there are 57 signals that Google looks at. Everything from what kind of computer you're on to what kind of browser you're using to where you're located that it uses to personally tailor your query results. Think about it for a second. There is no standard Google anymore. And you know, the funny thing about this is that it's hard to see. You can't see how different your search results are from anyone else's. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I asked a bunch of friends to Google Egypt and to send me screenshots of what they got. So here's my friend uh, Scott's screenshot. And here's my friend Daniel's screenshot. When you put them side by side, you don't even have to read the links to see how different these two pages are. But when you do read the links, it's really quite remarkable. Daniel didn't get anything about the protests in Egypt at all in his first page of Google results. Scott's results were full of them. And this was the big story of the day at that time. That's how different these results are becoming. So let's take a moment to think about this. If the universe is the universe, and the internet is a type of virtual facsimile of that universe, in the way, for example, a blanket thrown over a patch of terrain can give you an outline, a shape, a sense of that terrain itself, then there's a sense in which we can say the ability to catalog and pull data from the internet is a way to understand the universe at large, the world around us. But of course, that knowledge that we pull is only imperfect, as anything that is a digitized facsimile of the universe itself will be imperfect. But perhaps beyond that philosophical point, the point is, who controls the ability to catalog the internet? And as we've already pointed out, of course, it is companies like Google, which, as we have gone over many times before on the, uh, the Corporate Report and in my podcasts and videos and in other people's research, like Nafiz Ahmed's uh, Medium.com article series recently, Google has been infested and embedded with the intelligence agencies of the United States government and the, the well, all of the intelligence agencies that are connected at the hip at the very top. Uh, besides, uh, since its very inception, and that should be no surprise to any, I think, long-term listener of this report. So, in other words, who are the custodians, the catalogers, the librarians of this virtual world that we are increasingly experience, uh, experiencing the real world through, well, it is basically the CIA and whoever else is in, in bed with them, the NSA and whoever, who are sitting there really at the base of where we all go to search for this information, Google or, or Yahoo or any of the other common search engines. Now, I've talked about the various alternative search engines and their various merits and demerits before, Xquick and Startpage and DuckDuckGo and some of the newer ones that are coming online. Um, Mike Adams just uh, released a new one. There's uh, SigTruth um, and some other things. So there are alternatives to these, uh, to these behemoths, but the behemoths are the behemoths because most people do still use them and do still experience the internet universe. 
by way of them. And so the people who control the algorithms through which that those catalogs are generated and through which that information is accessed, then control, in a very real sense, our experience of that reality. If they can control, for example, if you're searching for, as the, uh, the, the speaker in that TED Talk pointed out, Ed, Ellie Pariser, as he points out, uh, if it if you're searching for Egypt and all that comes up is travel information or what have you, then, well, and you find nothing about the recent Egyptian revolution, that has just changed your perception of what that subject is even about, let alone the information that fills in that uh, knowledge of that subject. So the person who is controlling the results on that search, the librarian, as it were, really controls your reality. I think that's something, that's an aspect of this that is not even contemplated in the Borges story, where just the idea of someone who had even seen a book is something of a, a magical mystery, let alone the idea that some that there is actually a catalog that everyone has access to. There are problems even when the information overload is cataloged, because who gets to control that information and who uh, gets to control what information is released and what isn't, what is put higher in that search, what is put lower. It is really control over people's perception of the universe. But wait, it gets even worse. Not only do librarians, in this sense, the librarians, the custodians of the internet, i.e. the intelligence agencies, have fundamental control over what information you see or don't see by their ability to jigger their algorithms as they will, they also get to learn an awful lot about you by simply listening to what you ask them. In January 2012, Google introduced its unified privacy policy, which gathered together privacy policies of 60 different products. This unprecedented policy allowed Google to gather more information on its users than ever before, and to build a picture of private individuals' habits more complete and personalized than any data collection service had ever officially managed before. The purpose behind this all-encompassing privacy policy is to enhance and improve Google's own AdSense program. To provide the most precisely targeted ads in the world for which corporate clients will pay a healthy fee. Google is a commercial enterprise. It has to do business. It has to make money. In other words, to make money for Google. So just what does Google know about you? Well, you can find out fairly easily. If you have a Google account, log into it and you can go to your ad settings page. This will tell you the bare basics of what Google knows about you, your gender, your age group, and your interests. For instance, to have a Google Plus account, you must tell Google your age and gender. Google's list of interest categories is extensive, from films and TV, to psychology, to surfing. Many users have reported a surprising variety in the categories assigned to them. Typically, Google attaches 30 interests to each user, a somewhat scattergun approach that means Google's guesses are almost as likely to be perfect as completely wrong. In September 2014, the staff of The Verge website studied the accuracy of Google's basic user profiles, and the results were roughly 50-50, but undeniably much more accurate than they were expecting. The amusing occasional inaccuracy of Google's ad settings may soon be a thing of the past, especially with the rise of the smartphone. Google's Android operating system runs nearly 1 billion phones, making it the most used smartphone OS in the world. But Google Now can also be used on other operating systems, meaning it potentially affects another 750 million people. In other words, every smartphone user in the world. Google Now uses GPS locators to gather data on your daily activities. It calculates where you work and where you live based on the amount of time you spend in different locations, the regularity with which you visit them, and the time of day you usually go there. 
It can also use this information to estimate the distance you've traveled in a day and the amount of exercise you've done. By using the OK Google voice search, Google records your vocal patterns, ostensibly to better interpret what you say into the phone. According to the Mirror newspaper, Google now has even correctly guessed who users' girlfriends and boyfriends are. Google says that all of this is designed to provide the best tailored smartphone experience in the world. It will recommend events in your local area as well as set reminders for work, shopping and real-time weather and traffic updates. Yes, control. Absolute control. And of course, it's always phrased in the context of, well, we're just selling ads to people. We're just a hot, nice, harmless, huggable, wonderful company that listens to everything that you type as if uh, a, a priest listening to someone's confessions but noting them down for future benefit. Well, of course, we only do that for advertising. We just want to sell you more finely personalized products. And of course, they are very good at that. It is very creepy if you wander around online without such things as uh, no script and ad blocker and the various uh, tools that I've talked about in this podcast in the past. I'll put a link in the show notes to my solutions episode on hacking the matrix so you can download some of those tools for yourself. But without wandering around the internet without some of those tools, you will see some of the, the creepy ways that things that you've typed or things that you've thought or things that you've emailed to people suddenly start turning up in the ads suggested to you. Once again, of course, that is only a pale reflection of what is possible in terms of the absolute incredible databases and repositories of knowledge about you or your depersonalized IP address that reside in the databases of these giant search companies. It is mind-boggling to think about and when we really start to get into it of course we have to raise this this specter of something like the sentient world simulation which i've talked about before the dark darpa project to create a virtual you whoever you are a virtual you of everyone on the planet a virtual version that well as of eight years ago now i believe uh, the darpa had some version of that project underway and they were attempting to create a virtual world with a virtual imprint of you and uh yeah, i'm sure they have many 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 sources of information that they can draw on as we've started to find out with the various ways that the nsa has access to all sorts of information that they weren't su weren't supposed to have access to but by golly look at that they do so not only does the librarian control how you experience reality what you understand about reality but they also of course know everything about you what you want what you don't like what you think what you who you contact um, what you talk to them about, everything about you, and can probably talk, form a more coherent image of you than you can of yourself. Because, of course, the internet memory is, well, it will be, for all intents and purposes, infinite. As long as people are maintaining that repository of knowledge, it will continue long after you are dead. And your grandchildren will know more about you than you probably even know about yourself. Think about that creepy thought. And, of course, who is the one... Who are the ones controlling this knowledge? Well, ultimately, again, it is the intelligence agencies behind the scenes. Again, this reality that we are now finding ourselves increasingly placed into is not only not surprising to various people in the know, but has in fact been talked about and written about extensively for decades. And one example of that would, of course, be the classic treatise by Zbigniew Brzezinski, co-founder of the Trilateral Commission, a Bilderberg member and... 
you know, usual general uh, rat about town of Washington, D.C., uh, who in his 1970 treatise, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, a very interesting read. And, of course, one of the off-cited and very interesting passages from that work, which I think has some relevance here, another threat, less overt but no less basic, confronts liberal democracy. More directly linked to the impact of technology, it involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled and directed society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite whose claim to political power would rest on allegedly superior scientific know-how. Unhindered by the restraints of traditional liberal values, this elite would not hesitate to achieve its political ends by using the latest modern techniques for influencing public behavior and keeping society under close surveillance and control. Once again, that was written in 1970 and was very prescient of the world that we are now increasingly finding ourselves in. And if you read around academically, there are a number of academics who have been talking about cybernet uh, cybernetics and and connected networks, and how all of this technology is going to impact society in the future. This has been talked about for half a century at the very least now in a great degree of academic detail, and is just now being cottoned onto by the public. But let's contemplate what people like Brzezinski and others were writing about. Well, as you might remember from my conversation recently with Patrick Wood, well, of course, Brzezinski is talking about the technotronic era, but of course that's really just another way for to describe the technocratic Era, and he describes it very well here, a society, a controlled and directed society, where an elite has a claim to political power that rests on an allegedly superior scientific know-how. Interesting use of allegedly, because I would certainly agree with that. I think that a lot of the charlatanry that passes for the, uh, the superior scientific know-how of the would-be technocratic elite is, uh, well, well observed with that one single adverb. But... Looking, expanding out on that whole idea, well, yes, I think we are seeing the formation of a society that is increasingly controlled and directed and based on a political, uh, on elite who claim power, political power, uh, based on an allegedly superior scientific know-how, and that it plays out in many different ways. In fact, the quite overt and non non controversial placement of various technocrats, so-called, in positions of power in Europe during the European Eurozone crisis a few years ago. Well, that's just one aspect of this, but I'm sure we can all understand many others. And in fact, maybe we could look to another work of fiction for the idea of this, the the uh, idiocracy that we see coming into view, where people are more and more pliant and pliable and need to be told such things as, well, today it's raining, so please take an umbrella. Today it's warm, so you better wear short sleeves. We are becoming more and more a society that relies on other people to not only tell us information, but to interpret that information for us. And that, I think, goes to the heart of an extremely interesting issue that is brought out in this Borges story, the idea of information, simply information, ones and zeros, or combinations of 22 letters and three orthographical symbols, versus wisdom. Of course, this is not a new concept, the idea of just random wisdom, uh, random information versus ordered and understood knowledge that comes uh, through, through study, and then, of course, wisdom that comes on top of that, the ability to sort of see beyond that, uh, just that knowledge into what it actually says about the human condition. And I think we are moving into a society where we have as much information as we could possibly make use of, a library of Babel, as it were, and wisdom is becoming more 
and more scarce, and more and more in the hands of the elite few who are more and more in control of that information that you see or don't see because they control the algorithms that run the search engines. We are really coming into a type of controlled and directed society that may have been written about 50 years ago, but I think could scarcely even be understood in the magnitude and the, the, the severity of what we see coming into view as we see it today, let alone what will be possible in just a few short years, given the acceleration of the development of this technology that's taking place, and as noted lovingly by the transhumanists like Ray Kurzweil. So, I think this presents both the heart of the problem, the formation of this technocratic elite based on their hoarding of information, or not, or certain information, which would lead one towards knowledge and wisdom, uh, versus the the unwashed masses who have to rely on what trickles of information are pushed out at them through whatever mainstream sources they tend to rely on. And that is, of course, the heart of the problem. But I think there is the kernel of the potential for the solution within this as well. Because, of course, the internet is a participatory medium. It is not merely a passive medium where we are simply... Information is simply pushed out at us. There is a space for us to interact with it and to put ourselves into it and to direct our research and and our meanderings through that space. Now, as I say, it's becoming more and more controlled as more and more of these outlets like Google and the like are obviously tailoring uh, information to various people and, of course, weeding out things that are problematic. And I think no better example of that is evident than what's happened in the uh, video sharing platforms from Google Video to YouTube, where every time it seems like truth-related information is becoming blockbuster and is dominating whatever way they choose to organize this information from the Google video top 10 list to the YouTube homepage, well, they just change the algorithm or they take that function out entirely. And suddenly, all of this truth information isn't getting spread around in the same way. So that is, of course, part of the problem, and it is an increasing problem. But still, I think that the corporate report represents what can be and should be and I hope will be the solution for the future. Not the corporate report in particular, of course, but I think this is just one instantiation of that solution, which is our ability to combine our resources in this quest for information and sorting that information into knowledge and sorting that knowledge into wisdom, which I think is a participatory process that we can all be involved in and we can all help each other with and we can we can argue back and forth and hopefully come to a better understanding through those arguments. The open source nature of this investigation that we are engaged in right here and that is happening elsewhere on the internet, of course, is, I think, part of the way of seeing a different way that we can order information into knowledge, into wisdom. There is the occulted, hidden way that is the purview of this technocratic elite who are trying to manipulate us. And I think there is the grassroots response, which is, as we see all of these communities of interest and ideas that are being formed and, and, and streamlined and, and in various ways coming together online, and in many ways, perhaps it is a foot race. And I guess you can be more or less optimistic or pessimistic about that foot race. But at any rate, I think it is what is happening. And I'm assuming if you're a continual listener to the Corbett Report, you consider yourself to be part of that in some way, at least in terms of uh, sorting your way through this information space and uh, trying to find interesting nuggets for you to incorporate into your own research and your own lives. Well, now, I guess the real question here is, is there a way 
out of this library of Babel? Well, in the internet age, I suppose it would be as simple as turning off your computer. And so if you have just done so, as I said that, well, goodbye, and I truly do wish you the best, and please enjoy the rest of your life. For the many people who find it more difficult to completely detach from this internet that we are being woven into, well, is there a way to exist with the library of Babel, but to keep it in under control in some way? And obviously... For the narrator of the Library of Babel story, that does not seem to be a possibility. But it is interesting that one of the factors that is noted in this story is the development of various cults, religious societies, as it were, of people who have various revelations about the nature of the the library itself, its shape or its form or what information it does or doesn't contain and... They, they achieve this through revelation, or there are the people who go on fanatic witch hunts and try to burn all the books that they think are gibberish, and things of that nature. And, and, uh, and there's even the story of the man of the book, the man who clearly has read the book of books and knows everything. Uh, it must be basically God. It must exist. I mean, there's so many different ways that we can read, obviously, uh, religion into this, and I think that that's one aspect of this, but I think it also leaves the space for the idea of community more generally defined, the idea of people coming together to uh, to try to do something in this information space, to try to manipulate it or influence it or to use it for the construction of knowledge. And I think that's what I'm interested in. And I guess this is the point at which I have to leave this discussion over to you, the listener, because ultimately it will, I think, not be decidable or I don't think we're going to come to any grand conclusion today on this podcast. I would like to be able to, but I think this is where the the moment of aporia that we are left in, where the question, I think, is still an open-ended question. Can Can we escape the library or at the very least exist happily with this library of Babel and hopefully transform it into a library of wisdom that we can turn to? And if so, how? And obviously this is a question that could be answered very specifically with some specific ideas, or it can be answered very, very, very generally with some very philosophical ideas. And I'm looking for all types of feedback on this issue. So I will leave it to you to uh, to have at it and to venture into the comment section and please give me your feedback on what you think about this topic. But before we do so, as always, let's just go through some of the feedback that we received about last month's edition of this series. Firstly, I'd like to report in advance of this, the release of this podcast. Of course, one of the listeners, Glenn, uh, listened into last month's episode and found out that this episode would be about the Library of Babel, and he left his feedback in advance about his experience of the Library of Babel via email, so I will uh, share that with you because I think it very much encapsulates my experience of the reading of this, certainly my uh, youthful first reading of this back in university. He says, uh, I'd like to thank you in particular for recently guiding your audience uh, to read Jorge Luis Borges' The Library of Babel. Naturally, I had heard of him being among the roster of noted authors, but I had never read anything of his, nor had I ever looked into his background. Well, I simply have to report, am compelled to report, hence this email, that this short work of his has blown me away entirely. It is, in my humble opinion, an ingenious, masterful work of a greatness that is humorously in direct inverse of its brief length. Could this work be, in fact, the book, which is the formula and compendium of all the rest? Could it be that Mr. Jorge Luis Borges was, in actuality, the man of the book himself? I kid you, of course, but as I mentioned, this short story is 
masterful. It is at once a masterpiece of farcical satire and, I dare say, a condemnation, if not an outright indictment, of the human condition, or rather the propensity of our species to at once create and believe unswervingly in our own conceptualizations, rationalizations, inventions, and dissections. It is, speaking of exposés, a satirical look at how we have cut the living whole into pieces, and how this illusory, inorganic, presumptive organization that we call our understanding is in itself a mere delusory and disorganized fallacy, unbeknownst to the common man, and, as described, such contrivance leading itself equally to the empowerment of man's ever-present ignorance and its corollary, ego-driven greed. Anyway, that's the gist of what I take away from this work of art, and personally, on some level, I can't get enough of it, meaning I love reading it. It's simply manically faceted with so, so many aspects to it. Yes, it certainly is, Glenn, isn't it? Thank you for that feedback, and I, I absolutely completely sympathize with or empathize with your reaction to it because that is pretty much the way I felt. I was blown away by this story and I hope you were too. And as I say, we have only touched on the Corbett Report relevant, I think, aspects of this, but of course there are so many different aspects of this work to explore that we have not done so. So again, if you want to leave some feedback on that note, I would, well, wholeheartedly encourage you to do so on CorbettReport.com. But having said that, let's move along to the comments from last month's episode. Of course, last month we were looking at Terry Gilliam's Brazil, and there was a lot of lively commentary in the comment section, and there was enough commentary on my passing offhand one-sentence remark about the fact that Deckard was a replicant. A Decker was a replicant that, uh, well, it <laughs> seems that perhaps a, an issue or an edition of this series on Blade Runner is, uh, is in the works. I don't know. Maybe it should be. I haven't uh, planned it yet, but there was certainly a lot of lively commentary about that. Uh, but let's go to some of the feedback that was left specifically about Brazil. Uh, for example, Paul823 uh, writes to say, a great movie and more true to life than most would su suspect. In it, Robert De Niro plays a rebellious plumber who goes around fixing people's plumbing in defiance of government mandates and inefficiencies. At the time, the thought of needing a rogue plumber was pretty funny and original because such a thing would never be needed in real life, right? Unless, of course, you live in a nanny state like Australia, where the government mandates that temper what temperature you can have your water at. I kid you not. We had our wa hot water unit replaced just before Christmas, and at the time, I noticed the plumber putting a temperature governor on it that locks the temperature at 50 degrees Celsius. Hot enough for a shower not hot enough to wash dishes. He said he had to install it because the government said so, and he'd be in trouble if he didn't. If anyone has De Niro's number, tell him his services are required. Thank you for that feedback, Paul823, and just another sign of uh, reality catching up with art and the satire not remaining farcical for very long, just becoming plain mundane reality very quickly. Uh, Lincoln Lee uh, writes to say, interestingly, in an interview with John Cleese, he was asked if it was true he, sa he had said he lost his sense of humor, and if so, why? He replied that yes, he had, because humor is the examination of the edge between islands of insanity floating in a sea of sanity, which is mainstream reality. However, when the world, reality, has become a sea of insanity with mere islands of the sane, well, you can't laugh at the sane which, he said, the world has now become, i.e. a sea of madness with only a few islands of sanity, that it has overtaken the view that his comedy, like Monty Python, was poking fun at. Now it's all insane, and there are merely islands of sanity, which is another take on James's comment about reality catching up with the artistic view of the world we live in, projected in much film artwork of the past century. Thank you for that, Lincoln Lee, and thank you for pointing out that interview. While I was recording last month's edition, I was thinking of someone I knew I had heard or read somewhere, something very much like that 
observation that someone who was known for his comedy had said he couldn't do comedy anymore because the world had basically overtaken the comedy. I knew I had heard something of that sort before. So it appears that this was like the John Cleese interview you're citing. And if anyone out there can actually find that interview, I would very much be interested to see it or hear it because I would love to to be able to refresh my memory about that. Um, And moving on, there was an interesting comment from Octium who pointed out uh, how the title... Uh, character in the movie, the of course the the infamous misspell misspelling that uh, b- becomes the the uh, the central uh, MacGuffin that starts the, uh, the 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 plot going, is actually reflected in the OKC bombing story. Believe it or not, there's a 2001 Ar- Guardian article on Timothy McVeigh showing that uh, Timothy McVeigh went by the alias of Tuttle Tom Tuttle at uh, various gun shows. But the Guardian article itself has a Buttle slash Tuttle typo. So, again, very, very interesting. And I think perhaps the most interesting comment uh, for what it at least brings up, or at least potentially could mean, Torben Bohansen comments, Arnon Milchen a full-fledged operative for Israel's top-secret intelligence agency, LACAM, was the producer of Brazil. He also produced The Medusa Touch, a movie foreshadowing 9-11. A fascinating comment that got me looking into this Arden Milchin character, and yes, absolutely, a confirmed member of Israel's intelligence uh, networks and uh, involved in the, in the smuggling of nuclear parts that became the basis for the Israeli uh, nuclear weapons program that doesn't exist. Wink, wink. Um, so absolutely fascinating story. And he is a big name producer who's produced everything from Pretty Woman to Fight Club and LA Confidential and and the Medusa Touch and Brazil, apparently. So that's a fascinating little nugget of information. But can we extrapolate from that information and form knowledge or wisdom from it? I guess the question that I have with regards to that is it's certainly easy to connect some of the dots between some of the productions that Arnon Milchin has been involved in and their potential uh, relevance uh, for Israel and the Israeli geopolitical agenda and their intelligence agencies like the Medusa Touch. But then you have things like Pretty Woman, and <laughs> which uh, don't seem to have particular relevance, do they? Maybe they do. Who knows? Uh, I, I guess the question is, A, is there any actual specific evidence that Arnon Milchin in particular had any creative input into Brazil? Because, of course, producers can be more or less hands-on. And I know there is, a, I believe, an entire book about the story of Terry Gilliam's fight with the studio about Brazil, which, of course, as I mentioned in that episode, resulted in them cutting down the uh, the the original director's cut to and and replacing it with a silly happy ending. Uh, I know that that there is a book about that. I haven't read that book myself. If anyone has that or has access to any of the the documentaries or whatever that have been made about Brazil and and can locate any information about any role that Arnon Milchin may have had directly in this script, I mean that would certainly be something interesting to take a look at. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. Uh, there are many 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 other comments and ideas in these comment section. I can't go through them all because there are too many of them, but thank you for all of the feedback on last month's episode of this podcast. I'm looking forward to your feedback on this month's episode. And until next month, I guess I'll be talking to you. And I guess you're all on the edge of your seat waiting for what movie or book will be featured in next month's edition of the series. And well, I'm here to tell you it will not be a movie or a book. It is going to be a television series. I don't know. Is this going to have to involve the renaming of this entire podcast? Well, no. Let's 
hope that we don't get into too many television series on this podcast, but we are going to cover an ongoing, a current television series that you can access on Netflix, I believe. We don't have Netflix in Japan yet, so I don't really know, but I've been told it is accessible there and, I don't know, probably plays on some station or network or something in real life. I don't know. I don't follow TV and I'm not in America, so I don't know. However you can access it, I hope you can. It's the Daredevil television series. On the next month's edition of Film Literature in the New World Order, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Talk to you next month.